This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm the uh, producer at Westwards, as you probably know. Uh, and today my guest is Adam Turner. How are you, Adam? Yeah, good, James. Yourself? Look, I'm okay. So you're, you're in Melbourne at the moment, and, and of course it's a great time yep. to be alive because we can do this sort of thing uh, via technology. It's been pretty important, I suppose, in, the, uh, in this last year, hasn't it? Do you wish you'd bought tech... Uh, Very bought, much. Bought shares in Zoom about a year ago, like the rest of us. Oh, maybe. <laughs> I don't. I think they've had a few problems along the way, but yeah, it might have been a good time. There are some companies, some security companies, and some like collaboration companies that have actually done quite well out of this. It's accelerated what we would have seen in you know the next five or ten years worth of you know business digitization and people using more of this stuff mm. happened in a fortnight. Yeah, right. I guess well, I guess that's a good question to ask you later on, but I'll very briefly touch on it now. The idea that uh, technology that you've been looking at as a tech writer has accelerated in in sort of usability and what's available out there in the last year has it been really marked in its increase? Oh uh, well, it's more accelerated in adoption because what we've done this year in terms of people working remotely in terms of them using things like Zoom and collaboration tools like Office 365 or whatever it is, that stuff's been around for a while. That stuff's been, it's been, you know, maybe five, ten years, depending which industry, and it's actually been possible to do what we did this year. The reason why we didn't do it was more because people didn't want to do it either. Mm didn't want things to change or they didn't trust their people to work from home. There, was, there wasn't the will to do it. But the technology has been there for a while. If this had happened more than 10 years ago, we really would have struggled. But now that, because people have been dragging their feet on embracing this technology, and it's business technology and consumer technology. I mean, my parents are in their 70s and they're buying groceries online. And, you know, I would have thought that would be one of the signs of the apocalypse <laughs> that my parents are buying groceries online, but they're doing it. And now that they know how to do it, they're like, yeah, this isn't so bad. And so once they're, as this dies off, I don't think they'll necessarily go back to going to the supermarket every week, especially as they get to the age where they're not up for walking around the supermarket anymore. And just people buying stuff online on Amazon, on eBay or whatever. So now that people have been forced to do all this stuff, they're not necessarily going to go back. And the same with working from home. Now that we've proven that people can work from home and be trusted and be effective, then people who've been saying for years, look, it would be really great if I could work home from home one day a week because I've got a kid to look after or whatever. Mm. The boss can't say, oh, no, it doesn't work anymore because it bloody does. So all <laughs> that slow transition that we would have done over yeah. a few years, like I said, we've kind of leapfrogged ahead to where we might have been, we'll say, five years from now in terms of online shopping penetration, uh, working from home. And so for those businesses, it's fantastic. Mm. Uh, and, you know, people like Amazon have done really, really well out mm. of this. But for the old way of doing things that like, you know, bricks and mortar retail that thought, oh, yeah, we've still got a few more years up our sleeves before people make the jump. They're going to have to, you know, move with the times because yeah. they've lost that buffer they thought they had to, to move. 
Yeah, I know that when we first we first that Westwards went into working from home, you know, back in whenever it was. Feels like yesterday, but it was back in March, I think. Yeah. Um, my initial thought was, well, finally, we, you know, the, as you say, the whole world is going to realise you don't have to travel to a place in the CBD to work every day. But I got to say that after yeah. about uh, after about three weeks, I was busting to get back to the office just so I could see someone other than my lovely wife and children. True, but how many times, I don't know about you, but how many times are you forced to go to get on a plane and fly to Sydney for one bloody meeting? Sure. And you, you're like, we don't have to do this. And like, oh, yeah, yeah, you have to come. And now we've proven that's not necessary. So a lot of that kind of stuff, forcing you to get on a plane for one meeting or forcing you to come into the office when you don't need to be there because one thing's going on, mm. a lot of that we can finally say, all right, we, we, just, we know we don't have to do it that way anymore. Mm. So um, that will be... That would be a good change that people will accept that there are times when, you know, this meeting really could have been an email. It's funny, isn't it, though, when you're having the, so many Zoom meetings in a day that um, there is a certain fatigue comes with that as well, that you're not, that you're sitting there, you feel like you're on all the time because your face is on the screen. Yeah. So I guess there's a, there's a few social challenges and, and, per, and mental health challenges to face with this stuff as well. It's not really as simple as just logging onto Zoom and everything changes. The thing is that I've worked for myself from home for 15 years, right? I used to work for the for the Age newspaper, and now I've been freelance for 15 years. So this is nothing new for me. What happened during the lockdown is the world changed around me. I'm still right. doing what I've always done. So I kind of, when people say, oh, it's tough to work from It was funny when people realized, you know, oh, working from home means you've actually got to work. And all these people <laughs> over the Easter or a long weekend or whatever, like in my suburb, I swear every street had at least one or two houses that had had gravel or bark or something dumped in the front yard because every bloke's gone, right, we're going to get all those jobs done. And my next door neighbor got all this mulch delivered. And then suddenly his boss was like, oh, you've got to do all this stuff. And he's like, oh, crap, I've got to work. So I had to sit there for a couple of days because everybody thought, oh, working from home means you can do whatever you want. And it's like, I could have told you that. This doesn't work that way. No, you, uh, yeah, you just sort of... Um... I thought the I thought the pay was just going to keep turning up every fortnight, but nothing really was going to change. Yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't doesn't work that way, does it? And so we'll, that actually no. isn't, isn't a bad little segue into what we're going to be talking about today, because you're a you're a biz tech journalist, I suppose. Is um, a consumer te- a consumer tech and a biz tech journalist. Okay, consumer tech and biz tech. Okay, excellent. So we'll we'll come back to what they actually mean in a sec. But you used to be the fifteen years ago or more used to be the deputy editor of the Fairfax um, biz tech section. Uh, yeah. And yeah. You, you have written studies and reports and podcasts, not least of all Vertical Hold podcast. Uh, you've won a number of re- reviewer awards and journalist, journalism awards as well as being shortlisted for a whole page more of those. Uh, I also yeah. noticed that I, I, I've had a look at your Twitter, which is at Adam underscore Turner, uh, and you talk a lot about keto cooking and um you're also talking about going down sizes in in your in your clothing so that's something i'll I'll talk to you offline about because that seems impressive to me in fact the photo on your website is looks very different from your photo on on your twitter account yes i need to get a new bio for that the photo on the website is more than five years old and i've lost more than 25 kilos since then so i kind of have to get her i need to go out and buy a shirt that fits right and then um then I could take a new photo. See, most people don't lose weight during lockdown, but as you say... I'm you... the only person in Melbourne who lost weight this year. I mean, it's almost embarrassing. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that, you know, good on you. People go, are you okay? Are you really ill? You're losing weight. Or the rest of us are sort of yeah. packing it on. Anyway. Well, the, the short version is, is is not just that I set out to lose weight. I actually have some health problems and they're to do with diet, but I couldn't, I was having trouble figuring out what it was because it turned out to be a combination of different foods and stuff like that. So in the process of cutting back on things like dairy and carbs and stuff to feel better, mm. I lost weight. So I didn't actually set out to lose a lot of weight. I set out to figure, get my diet sorted out so I felt better, knowing that in the process I'd probably lose some weight anyway, and that's what happened. So it's been, you know, it's been a good outcome like that. And you're feeling better, I'm assuming. I am, but not just because I've lost the weight, but I've also sorted out the things that were make like, like I, because I was eating the wrong things, it was like a chronic fatigue sort of thing. I just felt terrible all the time, mm-hmm. and I knew it was to do with diet, but it just took a while to sort it out. So. I feel better, but more more because of that than the fact that I've lost the weight. So, have you found yourself writing about this as well as your because you're a freelancer, which means that you can pretty much yeah. write about anything uh, you want. Not so much because w- what I write about has changed a little bit. There was a time for about ten years I had a, a blog on Fairfax website. There were three three posts a week about whatever the hell I wanted to write, and like it, the paper didn't even know what I was going to write about until I published it on their website. And then, even though it was about tech, I had the kind of the freedom to talk about whatever I wanted. So I probably would have, if I was still writing that column, I probably would have would have uh, worked it in there a bit. But they've kind of changed direction. They they cut back on those kind of podcasts. Uh, sorry, those kind of columns and stuff. It was Birmingham, John Birmingham and I started doing it well, about ten or fifteen years ago. We were like two of the first when they started to take on more columns mm. and more blogs. But now they don't really want blogs like that they want every piece is a commission yeah. piece where you talk to the editor up front and agree this is what it's going to be about and i'm still doing a few columns for the paper um but even them some of them are on hold this year like one of mm-hmm. them i do for the sunday age that section and magazine relies on cinema advertising which of course has not existed this year no. so the section has been cut in half and my columns been on hold since march so I'm hoping it comes back next year as the cinemas ramp up again and spend more money on advertising. Hopefully that, that section will then get bigger and then they'll then want my column back. But that's the nature of journalism. You know. So that's that's actually taking me several several questions ahead of where I was going to be. because yeah, um, so I'm the king of tangents. You strap in, all right? Like, <laughs> that's okay. Don't think it's going in this direction because you just never know. Well, that's fine because that's the way I, I interview as well. I sort of just sort of let it, yeah. let it meander. But... Um, so let's talk about that now. I mean, it's been for a long time in television and so forth. There's been this trope of the of the freelance journalist who gets what most of us as writers would consider to be the dream job. You get what pretty much what you've just described. A, a, a large newspaper or, or outlet goes, um, we would like to pay you money to write something regularly. And that's not something... Yeah. Re- regularly isn't a word that comes up very often with freelancing. Uh, we would like to pay you regularly no. to write about anything you want. And, of course, then you have people like Carrie. Yeah, whatever the hell you want. Right, and then you have people like Carrie from Sex and the City who the, every episode is her trying to work out what she's going to write about this week. Is it, is it the dream job? <laughs> In some ways, it's the dream job. You do end up strip mining your life for content, though. All of my friends, when I have to write this blog three posts a week, and even now, all of my friends know that the price for my help with the tech problem is that you will end up in the paper. <laughs> Um, because if you had a problem with something, then someone else probably has the same problem. And I need three things to write about this week. So one of them will be, I helped my uncle because he needed to retune his television to get the MPEG-4 channel so he could watch the racing. Or 
Mm. I helped my sister because she clicked on a link she shouldn't have clicked on and then she had to go and change her Facebook password or my son's school computer had a problem because the school didn't set them up properly and so this is what I did to sort it out because I figured if they've got this problem, other people have got that mm. problem and that's that's kind of what you've got to think is what is it that other readers want to know about. But yeah, so I guess, I guess the upside of is that everything is a story. Sorry, I, I guess the upside of this is that your friends have stopped mining your uh, experience for relationship advice because they know that's going to end up in there as well probably. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, no one asked me for that kind of advice. Thankfully, <laughs> my column wasn't quite that broad. No one really needs to read about that in the paper. Well, that's, um, that's but yeah, that... it is, especially when you have regular gigs. Because there was a time, because blogging, like all things, blogging kind of came and went a little bit. And at the peak of blogging, I was writing 10 blog posts a week across, I don't know, three or four different publications. So I was always on the lookout for things to write about. Some of them were business focused and some of them were ghost written that didn't even have my name on them. But so I was constantly looking for things to write about, which is good that I write across a broad range of business tech and consumer tech because I could draw on different things. Like if I was writing a white paper for somebody about artificial intelligence, right? Mm. Then surprisingly enough, my column somewhere else this week was about some little aspect of artificial intelligence that came up in their white paper that I thought, oh, this is relevant to somebody else. So I would pick things from here and there. It's like, well, if I've spent all day thinking about that, I may as well write about some aspect of that for this other job that I've got to do. And that kind of makes sense when you could do that rather than trying to do each thing from scratch. So the busier you are, sometimes the more overlap you can, you can get. So I did have a question based on that, which has just completely evaporated from my mind. So I will... Uh... <laughs> Happens to the best of us. Don't feel bad. <laughs> oh, that's what it was going to be. Do you think that um, blogging, you know, as you say, it was it was big five, ten years ago. It was, it was massive and everyone had a blog attached to their, their website and so forth. And that was a big... You know, the uh, blogger, uh, blogspot thing was very big. And then podcasts have become a bit more de rigueur. Uh, and people have been listening to podcasts presumably while they've been travelling, but with people not travelling to work as much, do you think that the podcast uh, market is going to become a little bit tighter? I think it went sort of both ways this year. I definitely think there was a drop in podcast listenership because people weren't commuting as much and they weren't exercising as much, and they are the two times when people most tend to listen to podcasts. Mm. And we saw that in the stats for my own podcast, Vertical Hold, which is a tech news podcast I do with another journalist. And we have weekly, each week we have another journalist on as a guest to talk about whatever's been happening in the news that week. We saw our traffic drop off around sort of March, April, and then slowly creep back up again. And I definitely think that's because people listen to it on the train on the way to work or when they go for a run or whatever. Um, but at the same time, people also had more time on their hands. And so and more people sat around and said, oh, I think I'll start a podcast because I had things to do. They had nothing to do. But also more people had time on their hands and say, oh, well, you know, I've been meaning to not just the podcast I always listen to because they're techie, nerdy ones that I listen to for work, but I might listen to a podcast about cooking or travel mm. or something else. So I think it was sort of swings and roundabouts, but we definitely saw our own traffic drop off for a little while and then sort of build up again. So I was working in a music shop at the at the beginning of uh, COVID and we noticed that when the lockdowns were announced that all our gear like our podcasting suites and our condenser microphones and our good quality headphones and microphone stands and all that stuff in a weekend was completely stripped from the shelves. 
Yeah. Um, Just like you couldn't buy an Xbox or a PlayStation. <laughs> all people very quickly went, man, I'm going to have some time on my hands. Yeah, but I, I have got a hot tip for anyone who's listening who is keen on, um, who wants to buy, who likes to buy musical instruments because I can promise you that in about maybe six months to a year from now, there's going to be a massive number of second-hand instruments that are largely unplayed. Yeah available so keep yeah. an eye out in your local cash just like a puppy a guitar is not just for christmas <laughs> that's right well as, as one People of my friends turn around said, and go yeah maybe i don't need that well that's one yeah that's right it's disposable it's one of the first things you sell off when you need to actually pay the gas bill but but um yeah as one of my friends from the music shop said the other day he said they're gonna have to rework the way they write the ad it's going to be um rarely streamed streamed three times you know it's none, <laughs> none of it's been gigged yeah uh, but that, that's sort of the point I was getting to was that, yeah, that we, the podcast did, do you think maybe your podcast drop, drop off happened because there was suddenly this glut of other stuff to listen to? I mean, I, I doubt that's the case because most startup podcasts are pretty I think pretty it was grim. more just people, yeah. But also I think because for the first couple of weeks, because the, the coronavirus was dominating the news cycle so much, there wasn't that much else to talk about mm. and I think part of it might have been people would look at what it was about this week and say oh, I don't really need to listen to a podcast about the COVID state back or the whatever the whatever and so after two or three episodes of that we actually went out of our way to try and talk about different things and now like it'll come up we'll mention it in passing if it's relevant but we try not to dwell on it too much because people just don't want to be hit with that like part of the reason when they listen to a podcast is because they've got out of their house and gone for a walk or whatever and they don't want to think about <laughs> coronavirus for half an hour yeah they want to listen to the latest thing from the edinburgh fringe not that that's happening either yeah but so we found and we we always because every week we need to find one or two topics to talk about we always have our emergency topics if there's not much happening this week we'll talk about you know retro gaming or something like that and we'll get on a few people who, who know about that because that's one of those evergreen topics and mm. i think we ended up doing a little bit of that at the start of the once we were running out of topics we had one or two episodes where yeah that was a topic that you could have actually covered anytime mm-hmm. and then as the tech sort of started to pick up because it happened i think in all fields not just tech everything shut down for a while and then people started to realize well this thing's not going away anytime soon but we've got to keep like the world can't stop same with businesses as well. They they shut everything down for a while and they thought, all right, well, we can't necessarily operate the way we were operating before, but we can't just disappear. So like a lot of businesses, um, tech businesses started, you know, advertising and targeting different audiences and stuff because they realized we can still exist here. And the same with the tech news then started to pick up because people were like, oh, all right, well, we're going to have to keep, you keep going on, you know. Mm, yeah, indeed. So let's go back to some of the earlier questions that I was going to ask since we, we sort of speared off into undergrowth briefly there. Um, so you, you contributed to our, the, the list of uh, journals and outlets that you've contributed to is really long, but Macworld, PC World, of course, to keep things fair and even, Finn Reviews, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, APC, the ABC, Qantas Spirit magazine. I guess you're not writing much for uh, in-flight mags at the moment. No, actually, I don't have any in-flight mag gigs at the moment. They kind of come and go. But well, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any, to, be, any to be had, really. No. 
uh, and for all radio broadcasts and so forth. So um, you, you're very experienced in that regard. So how did you actually get started in tech and what made you do tech? Was it, was it um, did you have a degree in journalism or a degree in technology or where, how did your interest in, in tech writing come about? Right. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll go back a little bit further to give you the, the background there. Okay. So uh, when I was in high school, I, I was good at maths and I thought that maybe I might do something like accounting or something like that. And, uh, but I missed a little bit of school from being unwell. So my, my marks didn't kind of reflect my, my abilities in that area. But then about year 10, year 11, I started to realize that I was good at writing and I liked it. And I started writing for the age newspaper while I was still in high school. They had a student section. I was writing for that and getting stuff in the paper and things were going well. What were you writing um, about? Uh, I don't actually remember. Uh, the, the Premier, Joan Kerner, came to our school one time, so I wrote about what she had to say and I interviewed her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote about a program called Youth Parliament run by the YMCA each year where uh, on the school holidays kids go into uh, Parliament House and break up into teams and debate bills in Parliament House and stuff like that, which I was part of a couple of times. Oh, I can't remember a few other bits and pieces, whatever was going on at the mm-hmm. time that I thought would make a good story for the paper. Um, and so, uh, again, my marks weren't that great at the end of year 12 and I applied for a few. I think I applied for journalism at RMIT and a couple of things that didn't get in. But there were some professional writing courses going at TAFE. And so I got into a professional writing at St Albans VUT and um, smashed it really well it was the best I've ever done because finally I was there because I wanted to be there doing mm. something I wanted to do rather than being there because I had to be there so I did that for two years and got like distinctions and high distinctions for all my grades and at this point I was thinking that I wanted to be a political journalist because I've always been interested in politics and, and journalism and then I because I did so well in that I then got into study journalism and politics at Deakin University in Geelong because that back then this is 25 years ago or whatever. There were really only two journalism courses in Victoria. It was RMIT in the city and Deakin in Geelong. I didn't sit in the RMIT. So that was a three-year course, but I managed to do it in two years because I had good credit from what I'd already done. So I did first and second year. I did first and third year journalism and first and second year politics at the same time Mm. in my first year. And then the second year, I finished all the bits I hadn't done the first year. And the head of the course was happy for me to do that because I'd done so well of what I'd already done. Meanwhile, each year I've been applying to get a cadetship at the Age newspaper. And first time I didn't get past the exam, and then the second time I got to the first round of interviews, and then the, the yeah, I, I sort of got further every time, didn't quite make it. So it came to uh, I finished my journalism degree. I worked for the university for a year. I was about to get married, and I was applying. I was going back for my third go to get a cadetship at the Age. And I got to the final round of interviews and the, the final interview was the day before I was getting married. The final interview was on a Friday and I was getting married on Saturday. Um, and so I went to the interview and the interview went pretty well. And Michael Gwinder, who was the editor of the paper at the time, said, so this is you know, the third time you've come and, um, come and applied for this. Uh, if you don't get in, are you going to come back next year? And I looked him in the eye and I lied and I said, yep. Because <laughs> I decided that that was it. If I didn't get in this year, the dream was over. And I was getting married and it was time to... to sort of move on and I was working as a desktop publisher and a communications officer for a, a university so I was doing that. So you're going to take the message you're going to get the message like at last were you? <laughs> you're going to get the message yeah, pretty much. So, actually no so so um, actually it was earlier than that it was the Monday or the Tuesday and I was getting married on the Saturday 
And um, so they rang me up on the Friday, the day before I got married, and said, uh, you got this job. Because they, they weren't going to get back to me for a couple of weeks. And I said, well, I'm actually going to be on my honeymoon. And this is, I didn't have a mobile phone. I was like, you'll have to ring my dad and tell him I got the job. And apparently after I left the interview, the, uh, who was at Virginia Trioli and Corey Perkins were also in that interview, and they said to Gwenda, whether or not this guy gets the job, you need to tell him this week. He needs to know before he gets married on Saturday whether or not he has this job. So they rang me up on the Friday and said, you've got the job. And then so I told only a handful of people and then I announced him on my wedding speech on the Saturday. It's like, by the way, I got the dream job. So that was good. So I now had a cadetship at the age. And so that's, this is what, 1997, I think we're talking about. Um, and so you work your way around the paper for a year. So I did a bit of time on business and a bit of time on EG, uh, like the entertainment guide and a few other bits and pieces. And then I, after that year, I moved on to Green Guide. I was writing about Green Guide. And at the same time, I started writing about tech for Livewire, which is the consumer tech bit in the middle of Green Guide. And I still was kind of thinking, oh, maybe politics. But also, I've always been a nerd. and I've always been into technology and stuff like that. And once I got started writing for Green Guide and got an opportunity to write consumer tech for Livewire, I'm like, yeah, this is good. I like this. And I'm, I'm interested in it. So I kind of, and also I kind of became a bit disillusioned with politics. And I think if I'd gone into that, I would have hated it. So I'm glad it didn't work out that way. So I've been on Green Guide. Then I spent a year on Green Guide. And then I was looking to move somewhere else. And a mate of mine who started to give it at the same time I did, he was writing for the tech, the biz tech section. And he moved to London. So I took his spot on the biz tech section. So that's 2000 now. Um, and it just sort of went from there. So I was writing this tech section and I was, I had a, a column in that section where I was the reviewer. So I was reviewing sort of a bit of consumer and a business, business tech, but also on the side, I was writing consumer tech for a live wire. So I was writing for the, both the consumer and the business tech sections of the paper at the same time. So I did that for five years and that was going well. And uh, meanwhile, my, son was born and he was and when he was about 18 months old my wife went back to work and I thought oh this is getting a bit hard and I'm not sure if I necessarily want to be here and I need to do this anymore maybe I could go freelance and then they decided they were going to make some changes to my job which basically meant I was going to get a pay cut and a workload rise and I'm like yeah I think you just made the decision <laughs> for me so I said thanks but I'm going to go freelance so that was Easter 2005 I left and I went freelance and I actually managed to outsource two columns to myself as I walked out the door, which is what you do when you're an editor and you leave a newspaper. So I, I landed on my feet with some work from, from the age, and then I picked up other stuff along the way. And originally for the first few years, it was just consumer tech, and then I started doing more biz tech as well because I knew how to do it. It was stupid to turn that kind of work down. And then I also do more corporate sort of writing, so, you know, white papers and ghostwriting and all that kind of stuff. And now probably, especially this year, more of my money comes from that. So... Yeah. That's kind of how I, I, I did exactly where I thought I was going to be when I started on this journey, but I definitely think they ended up in the right spot for me, particularly because I wanted to go freelance because when you look at newspapers, the bulk of technology writing in Australia is done by freelancers. Newspapers, they don't have, like the age has a tech, uh, consumer tech editor, Tim Biggs, and that's it. Everyone who writes to him is a freelancer. And if I was still at the paper, that I'd be doing this job. And how much, um, of, how much of that freelance? So, oh, sorry. We've got a bit of a lag there. So, so how much of that free... I was just going to say, but if I had become a political writer or a sports writer, 
it'd be really hard to go freelance because they still have those people in house. Like, oh, we don't need you to write that. We've got a dozen people over there who could do that job. Mm. But tech was a good idea, good area to go freelance because there used to be the idea of, yeah, we need to pay freelancers for tech because we just don't have people in house anymore. So, yeah, it ended up to be a good area for someone who said, you know what, I, I think I'd rather do my own thing. And how much of the freelance work that you get is is them saying, is somebody contacting you and saying, we'd like you to review the latest suite of whatever? And how much of it is you approaching them and saying, I'd love to write this piece about so-and-so, are you happy to have a look at it, you know, send out a query or whatever? How much, what's the sort of balance um, of that? More of it would be people coming to me. And I know I'm, I'm quite fortunate in that way. Uh, and it's because I've been around for a long time and I know a lot of people in the industry and I've got a lot of contacts and I'm fairly high profile. Like I'm, I'm a big fish in a small pond, I guess is the way you put it. So I, most people who I write for have initially come to me and said, we like what you do, will you do it for us? And I've got a big enough spread of customers that a lot of them I can just wait for them to come to me. And it's good to have a lot of people who you do a bit for because then you're not too reliant on one person. If you're a little bit short of work, you can shake a lot of trees and see what, what falls out. Um, but there's a few people like the age where there are sometimes I will go to them and say, all right, how would you like a story? And they'll say yes or no. But there are other things where I have a column to do once every fortnight or whatever. And so then I say to them, right, this is what I'm going to do the column on. And they go, yeah, we're fine with that. Um, so it sort of works a little bit both ways, but most of it would be actually people coming to me and say, right, we've got this job. Cause also I do, I, I work for a lot of content agencies where they, We'll say your concerts and you want to have started in flight magazine. You don't want all the trouble to run on that. That's, that's not your problem. So what you do is you go to a big content agency and you say, all right, here's a shed load of money. Make a magazine for me. And they go, yeah, all right. Yeah. So they think, oh, all right, well, we don't have enough people on, on board to write all this magazine ourselves, but that's fine. Yeah. So then they come to me and say, well, Adam, you know, Qantas has given us a shed load of money to write a, a, a magazine every month and we want some stuff on tech. So whenever something techie comes along, we'll throw it to you. Like, okay, that's that's a good arrangement. So I have that arrangement with a lot of content agencies. So I don't do a lot for them, but I'm kind of their tech specialist. When something comes along and go, oh, that's a bit too nerdy for us, we'll just give it to Adam. And that's I like that arrangement. That's a good arrangement. Mm. Yeah, well, we, we got we got your details from Leone, who's with Article Writers, which I guess is one of those content agencies you're talking about. Um, how yeah, often, yeah, exactly. How often yeah. would you go to someone like Leone and say, I've got a, I've got... I've got a week coming up and I just, um, I've got nothing on at the moment. Have you got anything you can throw my way? Is that also something that happens? Oh, uh, not so much. Um, Leone's actually an interesting case because most of those content agencies came to me, mm. but Leone's one of the ones where I actually went to them. Right. It was probably last year I sat down and thought, I need to be expanding a bit more. I need to be trying. I'm a bit spoiled in that work comes to me. And I know that most freelancers aren't that lucky, but eventually your luck runs out. So mm. I need to be a bit more proactive about reaching out to people. So I sat down and made a list of content agencies who I hadn't really had much to do with and just started, you know, contacting them going, all right, you know, this is what I do. Uh, keep me in mind if there's something you've got that might be right for me. And Leone was one of them. I had nothing to do with them. I approached mm. them and they went, yeah, right, we'll keep you in mind. And then they throw a few things my way and thought, oh, this guy's all right. So now they throw more work my way. But I don't tend to go to them and say, what have you got? Because mm. they, 
it's more when the work comes in, they will come to me. There's no point in me asking them something. That's not going to make the work come along. It's when they've, they've got their customers who need tech stuff. And so I just wait for them to come to me. And if I'm too busy, I say, I can't do it. Or if I'm too busy, I say, oh, could you wait a week? And, mm. you know, normally they're happy to do that because they want me to do the job. But um, it does mean that your work is choppy, though, because I don't have a lot of control over it. I have weeks where I'm too busy and then weeks where I'm not busy enough. Mm. Now, I don't care about that money-wise because I budget in eight-week cycles. So right. I don't care if I make too much or not enough money this week. Like, you go crazy thinking about it that way. I just I always average it out over eight weeks. And as long as I go over that eight weeks, the money the money's okay. It doesn't matter. But the problem is, you know, eight people want something this week and then no one wants anything next week. And it's like, well, great. There's not much I can do about that. But just because you know all these people really well, you know which two are like, oh, they don't really need it this week. They just say they do. So you say to them, well, you know, I'm a bit busy. Can we push it back? And they go, oh, yeah, okay. Mm. So you kind of got to, once you get to know people, you know what you can shuffle around and what you can't. If it's for a, you know, if it's for the age or the Australian Financial Review or something like that, and I know they're on daily deadlines, they probably can't mm. push it back. So I know that they need it when they need it. But if it's for a monthly magazine, there's always a bit of fat in their, um, in their schedule. So I know if I say, oh, can I have an extra day or two, they'll probably give it to me. I'm really fortunate as a freelancer because when I worked for the paper, I was in charge of the freelancers. So all the freelancers would file, well, most of the freelancers would file for me. And I, I, I managed that page. I, I edited that page and laid it out in the system and did all that kind of stuff. So when I went freelancing, I had the experience already of knowing what it was like to be an editor which freelancers reporting to you. So I kind of, now that I'm reporting to editors, I know what they're going through. And that, I think, gives me a real advantage. I think it would be much harder to do what I do if you hadn't already been on the other side. So I've got two more questions for you then, and the first one is related to that. Um, if somebody, if, you know, you, you talked about being a, a big fish in a small pond, what if you're one of the smaller fish who wants to get, wants to get into that pond? Um, what would you advise someone who, it doesn't have to be for tech, but let's just say tech since that's what we've been talking about, somebody who has an affinity for that, who is a, who's a keen writer yeah. and wants to get involved in freelancing in, in a particular area, what, what advice would you offer them? Well, in some ways you're better off than I was because the ponds got bigger. Right. There's a, there, a lot of the outlets around just weren't around. I mean, even now, like I make money out of podcasting and blogging, which those words didn't even mean anything when I was at uni. Yeah. Um, so, but also there's a lot broader range of outlets. And also because tech is now more of a mainstream topic, more publications are interested in tech related content than they would have been before because you don't need to be a nerd to own a smartphone. Yeah. You know, it was a time when only nerds were interested in computers and stuff like that, but now your average person has one, yeah. which means your average person has questions and problems, which means your average publication is like, oh, yeah, we, there might be room for a tech page. Mm -hmm. So you can look a lot broader. And then online as well, like it's not just go down to the – it used to be you go down to the news agents and look at all the magazines and figure out, oh, who might take a story from me. Yeah. There's so many more outlets these days and so many more ways to approach it and so many more. It's much easier to start your own thing and work your way up. And a lot of people, a lot of, oh, I'll say mainstream media, that, that kind of just, it's a lot more diverse than it used to be. But a, a lot of reasonably high profile journalists started out doing their own thing, started out doing their own blog or these days they would maybe be doing your own podcast as well. And then there's online and it's easy to interact with people now with things like Twitter. Mm. You can interact with a journalist or an editor or a publication in a way that you just couldn't do before. So it's easy to sort of 
get your start, build your credibility. And then once you've got a few examples of things under your belt, it's easier to say to a publication, whether it be a, a Gizmodo or whatever, hey, how would you like a review on this? Mm-hmm. What's working against you is they just probably don't have the money. to. They don't have the budget to take it, unfortunately. Well, that's the changing but face of freelancing, isn't it? That there's less money to pay for yeah. it per word than there used to be. Yeah, but no, like freelance budgets have really dried up this year. I've really relied on my corporate work more than ever. I would have been absolutely screwed this year. If I was only a journalist and not a corporate writer, I would have really struggled this year. But yeah, so that's the thing you can, and that's still a variation on what I, when I started, you build up your portfolio and you build up your, your experience because people want to see when, if you're going for a job, like not as a freelancer, but as a staff writer, they don't just want to see that you can write. They want to see that you're a self-starter. They want to see that you'll go out there and go the extra yard and find the story and chase things down and get things done. And I know when I went to, when I was at uni, I, I was writing for some student newspapers and a few other bits and pieces. And now I, uh, I was writing for the, about the local uh, uni band competition. I can't remember whatever it was called. And then I realized that the final of the uni band competition was going to be in Wollongong because that's where the university games were. Mm. And I thought, oh, there's a few stories in that. Uh, and I could, you know, pitch it to the uni, uni papers all around the country. So I, I, I bet I just, you know, jumped on a train and went to this thing and, you know, found a place to, to crash for a couple of nights and wrote stories for about the, the games and about the band competition and got published all around the country. And mm. then so when I went, to my interviews at the age, and they said, oh, you know, show us your portfolio and what have you been doing? It was not just, oh, yeah, I sat around and waited for something to happen. It's like I went out and chased things down and showed some initiative and, you know, this is what I did and that's what they're looking for, mm-hmm. not just the ability to write. And, I mean, obviously, as a freelancer, it's a little bit different, but, again, it's that getting out there, getting things done, showing a bit of initiative, getting on the front foot, and then building up that portfolio and those contacts, and that's what will get you there rather than sitting around going, oh, gee, I really wish this would happen. If you want to be a writer, write, you know, start, do yeah. stuff, and then build on that rather than no one's going to turn around and just one day go, oh, by the way, do you want to work for the age? Mm. And of course, you, know, you, you want to make sure start that the ball rolling yourself. You want to make sure that the uh, people who are thinking of employing you are going to see that you're making their life easier that, rather than harder as well by. That is that you've just nailed. That is my one. If you want to describe a freelancer's primary job, it's to make an editor's life easier. Absolutely. So and that's, how, that's how I describe it all the time. If you're not doing that, then nothing else matters. You could be the best journalist in the world. You could be the best writer in the world. But if, in the end of the day, for whatever reason, you're a pain on the ass because you're just difficult to deal with, or you don't file on time, or your copy's not clean and it's full of mistakes and whatever eventually they will say, oh, well, we don't need you because it's a million other people who want to do this job and they might not even be as good as you, but they're going to make my life easier. So see you, later. you slide that's down the you list. Do. You slide down the list and they yep. move up the list and that's that's it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, my last... business model, I don't know if you've seen Reservoir Dogs, but mm. there's a character called Nice Guy Eddie and everybody likes Nice Guy Eddie. He's good to work with. You know, mm. My business model is to be the Nice Guy Eddie of the industry. If people go, yeah, Adam... Good to work with his files on time. He, you know, he's just he makes my life easier, and that's why people keep coming back to me because that's what I do. Well, that's, that's excellent advice. Um, the last thing I have for you, then last question, because we're pretty much out of time. Um, everyone's looking for the latest zeitgeist, the new scoop. What's coming next? What's the big tech thing? Is it uh, AR? Is it VR? Is it I don't know. Are we going back to oh. playing TRS eighty games on our t- on our four K <laughs> TVs? Like what? What's next? Yeah. 
I think in the long term, AR, which is augmented reality, has got more potential than VR. Because VR is where you put on a headset and you're in a totally fake world. Mm. Where AR is where you put on glasses and it superimposes something over the top of the real world. Mm. And when you think about the, the applications for that, it's a lot broader. I mean, we've had some false starts like Google Glass and whatever, but if that finds its feet, I think there are a lot more applications for that than there are for VR. Um, but other things, I don't know, AI is a huge thing. Well, not so much AI, but machine learning. And the uh, the things that the software that you're working with and the tools that you're working with will get smarter and will be able to help you figure out more things. Not do the job for you, but just be like that trusted advisor. Um, like they use machine learning for diagnosing cancer. Mm. Now, the machine learning doesn't decide which ones are the cancer. What it does is it's pretty good at, at judging it. So it goes through and looks at the, you know, thousand samples and cuts out the 900 that it's clear aren't cancer. So then a person only has to look at the last hundred rather than go through all of them. And that kind of tool that helps you do your job better, that's going to come into more and more aspects of work. So that's a big, like a mega trend that will influence a whole lot of things. Look, Adam Turner, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, you're, you can be found on Twitter at, at Adam underscore Turner. And your yep. other podcast is Vertical Hold. That that vertical is- hold behind the tech news. You'll find that we're all good podcasts are told. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're on there every week. So if you're sort of interested in what's happening, in, and we cover a, a, like a broad range of topics, you know, the MBNs, kind of our soup du jour, because it's been going on for so long. But yeah, if you are if you want to know a bit more about what's happening in the news, tech news, check it out. Yeah, appreciate it. Okay, thanks so much, Adam. Really appreciate it. No worries. Bye.